In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. After college, uh, a couple years after college, I was, like many people that age, a little adrift, trying to figure out what to do with myself, and took a barrage of personality tests. Personality tests like Myers-Briggs and the like. In fact, I went so far to see a vocational counselor. I wanted someone to tell me what to do with my life. And I remember there being one test that sort of tallied all this personal information and all of my responses to situations and even my history. And at the end, it kind of came out with some specific jobs that I would be good at. And I remember thinking, gosh, I hope it's, you know, sort of groundbreaking entrepreneur and, you know, frontline journalist or at the very least lawyer. (laughs) Not enough lawyer jokes these days. Um, uh, What it came out with was one social worker, second library science, and third elder care facility manager. It's not that exciting for a 24-year-old guy to be told he'd be really good at I mean, not to knock those professions, they're great. It's a little over underwhelming. See, I wanted to know what I was good at. I wanted to know where my gifts lie, where they, where they lie. My, you know, my children ask me the same question. They're trying to find out as they do various sort of extracurricular activities. They're trying to figure out what, what it is they're good at, what they enjoy, where do their gifts lie. And of course, the deeper question, the deeper question is, who am I? Who am I? This isn't just for people, by the way, at the, at the beginning of their sort of professional or, or life's journey. It's people at the end. You look back and be like, did I, was I actually good at that? What was I doing for the last 40 years? Did it make any difference? I don't know. I believe it is a source of anxiety, though, and we all yearn for a bit of clarity. Life is confusing. We are confusing to ourselves. We want to know. We want an answer. What should I do? Where is my time best spent? And how do I stack up against them? I don't know what it is for you, if this touches your anxieties at all, but I do know that personality tests are absolutely everywhere right now. Absolutely everywhere. Everywhere you look, you see Enneagram numbers and Myers-Briggs code, and you see, see introvert versus extrovert bingo cards. You see handbooks for Geminis and Pisces. Hogwarts sorting tests. I took one in preparation for this and turned out I'm a Ravenclaw, which is like saying I'm nothing. You know, it's not a, who wants to be a Ravenclaw? Um, Cut to the core. Some of these systems are helpful. Some of them are. Some of them are fun. And some of them aren't. Some of them are just ways to dismiss people or uh, to dismiss people. Some of them are ways you can accept yourself. It turns out I'm not inordinately rude. I'm just an introvert in a family full of extroverts, you know? Uh, But some of them are ways to sort of justify yourself. You know, hey, it's not that I just sort of plow through any resistance or discussion about every single topic imaginable. It's that I'm an Enneagram 8, and you need to get on board with it, you know? I think we, we crave a common language of acceptance a common language of acceptance, a little more clarity, a way to accept ourselves and other people in our lives. Well, this morning in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, a similar topic actually rears its head, and the topic is spiritual gifts. 
spiritual gifts, he feels the need to clarify a few things about the way that God gives gifts to people. And I'm going to just make three points about this. He says, the first point is that uh, the gifts that are given by God are diverse. Now, I'm not using that in the buzzword sense. I'm saying that they're actually different people have different gifts. And uh, that can be, in the here and now, that can be a source of gratitude, but it can also be a source of resentment. I wish I was as well-spoken as she was. I wish I had his courage. Well, in light of God being the one who gives the gifts, uh, the fact that we have different ones is not uh, an invitation to resentment, but one to collaboration and relationship. I mean, think about it. Perhaps creativity comes easily to you, but organization does not. You can maybe find someone who's good at organization. Perhaps your, your brother has great spatial awareness but cannot do math to save his life. Perhaps your child is, can read a room, is sensitive to what other people are feeling, but finds it arduous to make a decision. See, we, we need other people. That's what the diversity of gifts mean. It means we need other people. There is one body, but it has many parts, is how the Bible describes a healthy community. And it means also that not only do we have different gifts, we have different blind spots. Different blind spots that another person might be able to help us with. To those who feel the pressure to evince every sort of gift, to be good at everything, well, hopefully this is a word of relief you're feeling like you have to do it all, be it all. Well, God's economy, no one gets it all. We all need help. Second thing about these gifts, they're different, but they have the same purpose. The way that we talk about gifts today tends to be as inherent unique qualities. Things that not only set me apart, but will help me get ahead. You know, he's got a great head for numbers. She can read a room immediately and know what people are thinking. We think about gifts as those things that distinguish us and, again, that even are marketable. That's often the way that, that we think about it. It's sort of a resume-building thing. Well, the gifts of God, the gifts of the Spirit, are not there to build ourselves up. They are not there to make us better. They are for the sake of other people. They're not even for the sake of God. The Lutherans have a great quote about this. They say, you know, uh, God doesn't need your good works, but other people, but your neighbor does. God doesn't need your gifts, but your neighbor does. This means that uh, anything that you have is not there for your own gratification. If you are a person who is wise. It's there for other people. If you are a person who has patience, it's there for other people. If you are a person who has faith, it's there for other people. If you are a person who has money, it is there for other people, not there for you. What does Martin Luther King ask us? I mean, the, the, this is this weekend, right? He says, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? So what are you doing for others? An idol that Paul contrasts gifts with, idols which are not only silent, they don't actually do anything for you, an idol turns you inward, and we make idols out of our gifts. 
they, uh, they, they, we over-identify with them. We don't treat them as something that's been given. We treat them as something that we've earned or something that's ours. An idol turns us inward. What does this say about me? How can this help me? Gifts of the Spirit turn us outward. This means that the spiritual life is a practical life. It means that it is outward-focused. Thirdly, though, these different gifts with the same purpose all come from the same place. Paul makes sure to say that the same Spirit is the author of all these gifts. You see, because the temptation is to create a hierarchy out of gifts. The preaching is more important than administration. Or uh, uh, prophecy is more important than pastoral care. These are within the church. But I don't know what it is for you outside the church. I know that I went to a high school that was fairly selective, and once we got into the high school, then some kids were sorted into the honors class, and some kids were sort of it sorted into the regular class, and it was very disorienting for a 15-year-old. And you wondered, uh, certain things were seen as, as, as certain gifts were seen as definitely more honorable than others. You internalize that thing. People have a tendency, an almost reflexive tendency, to uh, turn gifts that they've been given into bases for boasting. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. But again, these gifts did not come from you. They're not really yours. You did not earn them. They do not correlate to your goodness. They do not correlate to your goodness, which means, by the way, that you're not defined by them. That's a good thing. If you're a person whose whose gift is that they can see what's wrong with certain systems, they can see exactly where things should go, but as you get older, your mind starts to dull a little bit or move a little more slowly, and all of a sudden, or who are you if you're not good at that? This is, there's, there's freedom here in this understanding of gifts. You are not defined by your gifts, be they large or small, be they the ones you wanted or the ones that you didn't want. They are from God. The great example for me of this is Brian Wilson, my favorite musician on the the face of the planet. He's the leader of the Beach Boys and was basically responsible for creating an entire idiom of pop music that is still very, very respected to this day. Now, Brian Wilson is uh, what many people consider a genius, and he's inordinately gifted. He's the sort of person that not only can hear, you know, he's got a, uh, one of those ears that you can hear. He only has one working ear, by the way, uh, that can hear pitch perfectly. But he can sit down and write a melody that'll just boggle your mind, that'll stick in the public consciousness for years. And yet to hear Brian Wilson talk about his gifts, he sounds like a third grader. He's a very broken and fractured man, but he has, his ability to account for or articulate his gift is so much smaller than the gift itself. It's a great reminder that gifts are grace. We do not deserve them. If you are a person who is gifted, it is not there for your sake, and it doesn't really even belong to you. And that's a really democratizing, beautiful, I think, view of how we're given talents in the world. But ultimately what it means is that God is a giver of gifts, not parsimonious. We see this reflected in Christ's miracle at Cana. He is a giver of abundance, of joy. Now, if God is a giver of gifts, if that is fundamental to his nature, it means two things, which I'll close with. First of all, 
The spiritual life is a life of receptivity. Not a life of striving, it's a life of receptivity, which is to say it's a life of acceptance. You know, some of us have a hard time accepting things about our lives. Some of us have a hard time receiving gifts. Well, there are reasons why that may be true. It could be awkward. It can be uncomfortable. There can be strings attached. But it runs counter to the spiritual life. You know, many of us live in a place of wishing we'd been given something other than what we have been given. But the Buddhists are right when they say that the, the goal here is not to get what you want, but to want what you have. But if God is a giver of gifts, it doesn't just mean that our lives are a life of receptivity. It means that everything that we have is a gift. Your home is a gift. Your clothes are a gift. Your job is a gift. Your financial resources are a gift. Faith itself is a gift. Everything is a gift. Life is a gift. It is a gift to be able to confess that Christ is Lord, not an achievement. This is very important to Paul. But it doesn't just mean that these good things are gifts. You know what it also means? It means that the pandemic is a gift. It means that the snow and the disruption it's about to cause is a gift. It means your difficult sister is a gift. It means your distant child is a gift. The hard time you're going through right now is a gift. The thing you are struggling against most, well, the eyes of faith say that one day you will see that, that, even that, as a gift and not a curse. The big book of AA goes so far as to say that even the pain of my defects is the very substance that God uses to cleanse my character and set me free. So it's true. It's actually true. Everything is a gift. And not just, not just the good things, the things that don't look like gifts. And I can say this not because I'm trying to, you know, put lipstick on a pig. Isn't that the phrase? Um, I can say this because God's ultimate gift is His Son, the lowly carpenter, the ragged teacher who was crucified and killed. This Jesus who looked the opposite of shiny or golden, yet showered the world and continues to shower the world in what it actually needs, which was truth forgiveness and grace and an open doorway to reconciliation of all kinds. Now come to find out this is not a gift we accepted. It is a gift we rejected. But in his resurrection, what we find is that the gift of God to you and to me is not premised on our response. Thanks be to God. Nothing we do or don't do can make this gift, this gift, any less of one. We do not possess the power to invalidate divine generosity or renegotiate the terms of our acceptance. The giver, the giver is good, and so is the gift. Amen.